The Keep Birth Wild podcast acknowledges the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners and custodians of the land, sky and waters on which this project is produced, and we pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. We extend this respect to all First Nations people on whose country we live, birth and raise children. We acknowledge the ongoing leadership, resilience and commitment of First Nations people who continue to fight for their right to safe and culturally appropriate experiences of pregnancy, birth and postpartum, and we commit to continuing to explore our own role in that journey. Lastly, we honour and celebrate the ancient birthing knowledge and practices that have existed on this country for thousands of years. May this wisdom continue to nurture life for many generations to come. Welcome to the Keep Birth Wild podcast. My name is Indy and through this series I'll be speaking to women who plan to birth their babies at home. Join me to hear home birth mothers sharing their stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum. In this episode I have the pleasure of speaking to Catherine about the births of her two children. Catherine lives and birthed both of her babies at home in Ireland. In this episode, we talk a lot about the differences and similarities in maternity care and how social and hospital systems work against people who choose to home birth, and ultimately even more so against those who birth in hospital and experience unacceptable rates of intervention and birth trauma. Catherine shares beautifully how she navigated birth and family trauma and what she identifies as a phobia of pregnancy and birth to achieve two positive pain and injury-free home births. Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Would you like to share a little bit about yourself and your family and your our first overseas living guest? So maybe a little bit about where you're living? Sure. Um, yeah, delighted to be sharing my story. Um, my name is Catherine McCabe. I'm living in Ireland. I'm a dual citizen for Australia and Ireland because I spent 10 years in Australia. I've been home in Ireland for six years. I have two children now, so one born in 2014, one born in 2016, and a wonderful Canadian partner. And yeah, maybe before we start, would you be happy to share, um, I don't really know anything about what the maternity uh, care system is like in Ireland and specifically for home births. Would you like to kind of um, give a brief kind of overview of what that looks like to your knowledge? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the culture that we're in in Ireland, you know, we've, we've inherited a lot of patriarchy and a lot of handing over of especially women's power to people who have or who are perceived to have more authority. So I think that really informs what I see as being the main problems with the maternity system. So the majority of women think what I thought about birth, that it's a uh, a thing that you have to do to get through and it's going to be awful but that the doctors know best and once you're in hospital that's the safest place that you can possibly be and whatever they tell you while they're there is absolutely for your best interest and for the predominant predominantly for the best interest of the baby so um, i think what i have seen happen especially with people having birth giving birth in ireland in hospitals is a lot of handing over of their power and trust to what is typically active management of labor in hospital systems here. So once you arrive at a hospital, you have roughly 12 hours or often very specifically 12 hours to advance through your labor, 
you know, within the timeframes that the hospital staff perceive to be appropriate. And if and when that doesn't happen, we see interventions start to happen. So typically it starts with a sweep. So um, the beginnings of an induction. Induction seems to be really, really normal here. Like it's hard to find women who are not induced as par for course. Um, so uh, induction start to happen with things like a sweep or you know putting gel on the cervix, and then that tends to escalate the experience of birth to the point where pain painkillers are needed, and eventually we have really high high levels of cesarean sections, uh, sixty percent in some hospitals, eighty percent episiotomies, eighty um, percent the, the episiotomy rates here are absolutely normalized. Like if you didn't get one. It's very, very unusual. Um, cesareans and elected cesareans are high. Uh, first time um, parents, cesareans are super high, something like 25, 30% in some places. Um, and so then subsequent births tend to be uh, also cesareans because there's a lot of fear put into people around giving birth vaginally after a cesarean. So that tends to be then become the normal accepted second birth. So um, home births in Ireland are offered now in the last four years by two means. So initially they were only offered by one means and that was through the government service, which is called the HSE, the Health Service Executive. Um, and in the last maybe four to five years, we also have had a private home birth program set up by a company that you're required to pay for. The um, public one is free, which is amazing. Um, and really, really hard to get. So the system here has been a death by a thousand cuts, much as I perceive it to be in Australia. So it'd be interesting to hear how your perception of home birth support is in, in Australia, but in Ireland, death by a thousand cuts. So um, really low pay for the midwives. They're, they're considered to be self-employed, so they have to manage all of their own fees and payments. Um, but then they also have to sign this continuously more and more restrictive memorandum of understanding each and every year with the government. Uh, you're required to have a second midwife at your birth, which is best practice and wonderful and should be absolutely available for anybody. However, um, the second midwife is required to pay a thousand euro a year to register and then they only get a hundred euro per attendance of the second birth. So, you know, very simple maths means you have to attend second just to, or you have to attend 10 just to break even. Um, so, you know, it's, it should be a business that's covered and paid for uh, by the government that's employing the home birth midwives because they do an incredible job and they do it as a calling, but they shouldn't have to, right? That should be their, that should be their income as well. So um, when I was looking for a home birth, uh, I thought it would be as simple as just ringing up my local home birth midwife and requesting one. And that's where the rage started for me. And that's where it became more political than I had expected because it just wasn't available. So there was 18 home birth midwives on the list for the entire country. And it's a country about the size of Tasmania. Um, 5 million people, 18 home birth midwives, which includes the second midwife as well. Yeah, so um, 
and you know I was so upset I started ringing midwives and was just getting like kind of fairly flippant sorry we're not available responses which also wasn't how I expected to be met I expected to be met like oh we're so excited which of course you know was not their job to do but again was just like an indicator of how stretched they were and how unsupported they were and eventually I just got really lucky I was visiting a friend she lives in Ireland's only eco village I was telling her my woes about not being able to find a midwife and she said oh there's a home birth midwife in the village do you want me to message her she messaged her she came straight over to the house She's like, oh, when are you due? And I said, this was in, in the very early stages of my pregnancy. And she, I said, in you know, seven months time in October. And she says, wow, I have one slot left for October. And then her phone rang and it was somebody else looking for the October slot. And she's like, I think I've just given it away. I'm really sorry. So like just pure luck. Mm. Um, and then it just so happened that my friend who I was visiting was going to be away from her house for the whole month that I was due. So it was just all falling into alignment and I managed to get a home birth midwife available. Wow. That's yeah, that sounds like a massive ordeal. And yeah, being in Australia, I can relate to so much of that. Although those um, statistics that you mentioned are, are very shocking. Our, I mean, our rates of intervention, induction and, um, cesarean are very high in Australia as well particularly in the private system but but nothing mm. like that that's something else altogether <laughs> yeah it really is and it's also you know yet another indicator of I suppose what I would see is that cultural disconnection maybe you know in your context from wildness our breastfeeding rates are the lowest in Europe so we have a six percent breastfeeding rate at six weeks really 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 low and you know to bring in the economics of it we also produce uh, the majority of the world's formula milk especially for china because we're such a dairy producing country so again those things are really interesting and i want to make it super clear that i don't perceive that as a failure of people who are trying to breastfeed i think you know the stories that you hear consistently are i was alone in a maternity ward with my baby my baby was screaming and they came around and offered me a bottle and they told me to take the bottle and they told me the baby was starving and they told me I had no milk and they gave me no support and then I got painful and sore and there was nothing I could do and then I couldn't breastfeed and it's like mm. yeah that's what happens of course without support and without eldering and without those services being in place immediately yeah it feels shocking to me that in a time when we have so much information and data and research into what is best practice that stuff like this is still is still what's happening. It's, really, it's heartbreaking. So we might go back to your first pregnancy. How did how did that pregnancy come about? Was that a planned conception or how were you feeling in that initial finding out period? Uh, total shock. Um, I had not planned on ever being a parent. I had grown up with a lot of intergenerational trauma. So another um, aspect of Irish society are our industrial schools, so industrial orphanages. Um, and it's thought that one in four people in Ireland are affected by that lineage of, of trauma. So my mother was taken at, as a baby and placed into an industrial orphanage, which means um, they were forced to work. There was an awful lot of abuse and trauma. Um, and she was kept there for 19 years. So I had this huge lineage of um abandonment 
that was sitting there and a desire to really actualize myself and follow my own path that was really very strong for me and still is. Um, and then I met and fell in love with somebody who I had met and fell in love with 15, no, 12 years earlier at that stage. On um, I went abroad to Canada as a young 21-year-old, I think maybe I was 19, something like that, um, to Canada for the summer. And I met this guy that I was completely mad about and fell in love with him. We had a summer romance and didn't see each other then for 12 years afterwards and happened to cross path again in Canada when I was over working at a conference and it was sparks. And yeah, I knew again what I had known all those years earlier that he was absolutely, you know, a person that was for me. And yeah, I think nature took its course then and <laughs> we got pregnant within a year and a half. And uh, I was utterly terrified. That's when I realized that I had been carrying all of this huge fear around pregnancy and birth that had made me feel really indecisive about parenthood for my whole adult life. And I remembered um, with my sister, I have a little sister who always loved children and I never loved children. I was always kind of like, oh no, I don't want anything to do with children. And she always loved children. And I remember as a child telling her, if she would have my children for me, then I would buy her a Fabergé egg. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> and that was really young. You know, we knew nothing about Fabergé eggs. We, we grew up very poor in rural Ireland. And of course I didn't know anything about surrogacy, but um, that was what I really wanted. I, I just wanted to avoid pregnancy and birth. And I wasn't particularly drawn to the whole parenting role anyway. So it felt okay with me. Um, and then prior to that, I had had a relationship with a woman in Australia. So we were together for almost six years. So it felt like it wasn't, it wasn't a factor anymore. I didn't have to worry about it or think about it. So then I found myself pregnant. I was back home in Ireland. I spent part of my pregnancy back in Australia, closing down my life there after 10 years, then going back to Canada to see him, to try to make a decision about what we do with our lives together. Um, and just realizing that there was wave upon wave of fear and terror stuck in my body um, that now being pregnant was making me deal with. Well, it didn't make me deal with it, but I tend to deal with stuff. And um, especially when the physical sensations are there, I, I really, I really wanted to enter into the fear. So I spent, I had a really emotional pregnancy, but like really like dedicated to the emotion <laughs> like not like oh I have no idea what I'm doing but like oh god I'm in so much fear this is so huge oh my god I'm like just being so conscious of the story of abandonment and trauma and you know my mother's stories of giving birth in let's say 1960s in the UK where when they went into hospital they were completely alone that was the norm. Um, they were shaved in their genitalia without consent. Like that was just practice. They were then strapped to the bed and left to labor alone. 
Um, and because of my, my mother's experience, you know, growing up in an industrial school where she had been completely isolated from the outside world, like, you know, in the 60s, she didn't know who Elvis was. She didn't know who Winston Churchill was when she got to England. Um, so really, really disconnected from typical social experiences. And she was giving birth, having no idea where the baby was going to come out while she was in labor so um those stories obviously form form us don't they are you know our 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 mothers especially our birth stories so that had formed a huge part of me and I'm just thinking now as I'm speaking like the agency that I wanted like the, the information that that made me seek out because obviously I had at that stage I was in my late 20s no late 30s I was in my late thirties at that stage and I knew that there was more to the world than what she had had the experience of. I knew that there was the possibility of agency and I knew that there was a possibility of um, maybe wildness, like maybe, you know, a sense of reclamation of myself and my story through birth, like something I had, I had had experiences, especially in Australia where I studied um, a fairly radical master's called social ecology, which was filled with much older, um, more diverse people than I had ever had contact with. So they gave me an understanding of what was possible through birth, like what was possible to gain through the birth experience, that it could be transformational and empowering. And so that was just enough of a seed for me to then you know, as a friend of mine would say, shoot that arrow and go find the information that I needed. Um, And I was, I, you know, I I would be probably a person of extremes. So I knew that I was either going to just completely surrender to the medicalization and go in there and request a cesarean and request to be, you know, drugged as, as much as possible uh, so that I could completely numb myself from the experience or, I was going to go into like, you know, a transformative experience and and try to have the best possible birth that I could. At that stage, I think I was motivated very strongly by having spent seven years in um, psychosomatic therapy, you know, so I'd done an awful lot of my own healing and I knew how traumatizing birth could be and I really didn't want it. I didn't want the trauma. I was like, you know, this, I, I just don't want to have to deal with a whole extra layer of disempowerment and trauma from my own body if I can if I can choose another option. Um, so my perspective of things is quite analytical. Like I, I like to understand theoretically and cognitively what's going on and that helps me understand what's going on in my body. I know that there's people that have other other approaches to it. They just want to have a, a fully embodied approach, for example. But for me, what was liberating to find out was, you know, the physiology of labor. Like, what is it? What is happening in my body when labor is happening? So to me, it was utterly transformational to hear in that book that, you know, people who are in a coma will still give birth. Like, that was the seed of transformation for me. I was like, what? Like... I don't have to do anything. Mm. And actually what I have to do is not do anything. Like I have to get as much out of my own way of the fear 
as possible. Okay, how do I do that? And so then I discovered um, the hypnobirthing approach, so the Mary Mongan approach, which to me is a more embodied or more body focused approach than there's a, another um, version in Ireland called gentle birth, which tends to be more meditative. So some people might like that more. And um, because of my experience with body work, I, I much prefer the, the body approach to understanding those sensations and relearning how to be in the body in a way that's not fearful, you know, through the body that that resonated with me, like the science of it. So again, like understanding what a contraction is, that there's two sets of muscles in the uterus and one is widening and opening and the other is contracting or the other is like uh, loosening and and stretching upwards and the other is stretching outwards that's what a contraction is okay you don't you mean my body is not ripping in half that was amazing to me that was like mm. okay it's just muscles stretching that's what it is i can do this so like retraining my brain to understand what was going on with my body when I was experiencing different sensations was totally transformative for me. And then um, understanding what to expect at the different stages of labor and how to use breath work, visualizations, um, mantras like training over the nine months of pregnancy to kind of switch a different part of my brain into autonomy maybe into like an automated like, okay, this is what I'm experiencing now. This is the breath that goes with that. This is the visualization that goes with that. And then having like an incredible home birth midwife who talked me down every time I reached the edge of fear and helped me stay with those feelings and um, trusted me, trusted me enough so that I could trust myself at the times where I was wobbly, it was utterly transformative. Mm. Wow, amazing. and. Yeah, that just feels like such a radical approach given given the kind of the background that you came from and the trauma that you <laughs> mentioned and just how much information was or was um, available to you to yeah to be able to take it that far um, in preparation for your birth and have that experience the first time around, not the second time around, is yeah. so wonderful. I'm I'm so happy for you that you made so happy, so happy for me to have had just enough access to enough potential for something to be different and to then have had the support to follow that. And it's one of the reasons that I've made a point of sharing my story. I do a lot of work with young people as well. And I wish I had known that there were other possibilities for birth. And what I found with working with, you know, typically the age range that I would work with are like 15, 17, 18, 19, that kind of age. And initially I thought they're too young, like they're not really interested in this. And so I offered my story as like an optional, you know, if you have an interest in this, this is something that I've navigated. I came from a place of like quite terror. Like I was really terrified. I, I would have described myself as having a phobia of pregnancy and birth all through my childhood and teenage years. So, you know, to let them know that this has been my experience and this is what's possible and this is how to make it possible. Like I, I feel, and, and with my other work as well, I feel like so much of what we perceive to be normalized or impossible actually has like a social construct that shapes it, you know, either 
a combination of our own personal stories and the society that we live in and the support that we have available to us. And there are things that make things more likely, right? Or less likely. And I find that so fascinating because often I see, you know, I, I think about it as like, you know, the veil in the Wizard of Oz and taking back that curtain to say, you know, behind this magic are some things that we can do that make that magic more or less likely. So, you know, showing up at a hospital, like it was so transformative to me to, to learn and to be reminded, right? Like that we're mammals, that we're mammals and we, we're mammals when we give birth. And so when you put any other mammal under bright lights and have people coming in and out of their birthing state when that they don't know and that they're not comfortable with and that they haven't asked for, that that slows or shuts down labor, right? So when you go into hospital to have a baby and your labor shows down and then they use terms like failure to progress, um, there's a reason for that and it's not your failure. To me, that's so crucial. That is like, if I could help people understand that that's not your failure, that that's your body responding with so much wisdom to a system that's not designed to support an intelligent body. It's designed to support a medical system that needs to move you as quickly and with as little potential for um, what they perceive to be risk as possible. But you know, by mitigating what they perceive to be risk, partly because they just don't understand what a physiological birth looks like. Like the, the greatest pushback that I had and continue to have around the birth choices that I've made are from medical professionals, especially midwives, typically because they haven't experienced and they have experienced really traumatizing births mm. over and over and over again. And so then you have midwives who think that that's what birth is. Like they genuinely believe that that's what birth is because that's been their experience over and over and over again. And then you get people like, you know, women who go into hospital and then have these birth experiences. And for me, the greatest tragedy is that they think that they couldn't have the birth that they wanted and that the hospital saved them from the risk of having that birth because, you know, this happened and then they needed to be induced or then the induction just didn't work and they didn't progress quickly enough and then they needed an epidural and then they needed syntocin to make their their contractions come on further and then of course they needed an episiotomy because the baby was just too big or you know all these stories again and again and again that um to me are in most cases not true it was this it was the hospital circumstances of the labor that actually increased the likelihood for the need of those interventions that then lead us to believe that we needed those interventions. Mm. Um, we refer yeah. to this a lot in Australia as like the cascade of interventions. And um, yeah, I've been listening to a few other kind of podcasts from doctors and that sort of thing recently who are supportive of birth as a physiological function of the body that's normal um, but in recent years in Australia more and more guidelines have been brought into hospitals to address the results of all of those interventions but what they're 
what they're putting in place is just more interventions that come with their own attached set of risks and nobody's really addressing the original problem which is that you know birth is a physiological function of the body and we need to be looking at what actually supports that function and what actually supports birth to occur which is what you're saying things like the environment and the care providers and you know feeling safe and feeling cared for and and being supported and like ultimately what I think is the best thing about a home birth midwife is that they trust birth. They actually trust birth. And they need to do it in the most supportive way. Mm. Like I, I'm sure this is common, but I remember my senses being so heightened, you know, like I could have picked, I picked up a side eye two rooms away, you know, <laughs> like that level of perception was for me anyway, was, was just heightened during labor. And so having, midwives who I felt not just cared for but also like an equal power connection with like you know I didn't have that deference to like oh tell me what to do here because I have no possible idea that I will know and I'm completely handing over my agency and power to you it was just like okay work with me this is what I need I'm afraid right now the contractions have slowed down why is this and having a midwife that knew me well enough to know she needs information right now. Like that's what would help Catherine. Like she needs to know, okay, emotionally what's probably going on. She needs a guess at that. And she needs to know physiologically what's going on and that will help her. And so she said, oh, some people have a fear at this last like, stage of the pushing. And I'm like, oh yeah, that, I'm, I'm definitely experiencing fear right now. Thank you for naming that. And here's what we can do right and then having you know herbs there like you know having a, a, a bottle of clary sage shoved under my nose and being like what oh my god the contractors are back again this is amazing um just really skilled professionals there to know um what i was experiencing and to predict what was what was likely to happen and i'm thinking i'm actually thinking as a side conversation my sister um, had her first baby a year ago and again um, she chose a home birth she's in a different jurisdiction because she's in the UK part of Ireland so Northern Ireland so again a whole other scenario um, and she ended up I ended up with a maybe six seven hour labor total from my first um, pain-free injury-free and quite blissful like really a beautiful experience um, and she had a 72 hour labor in her home birth and utterly supported and empowered to make the decisions that felt right for her by the, by the home, birth, home birth support midwife. So like really incredibly different births mm. um, supported in the way that they needed to be. Whereas if she had been a 72 hour laborer in hospital, it was, she would have a hundred percent had a cesarean. Yeah. Yeah. And she had no injuries. There was nothing wrong with the baby. Everything was fine. She just had a really slow labor. Mm. So, yeah. So I think you mentioned that you were eight weeks pregnant when you was in Ireland and looking for a home birth midwife. And yeah, once you'd connected with that midwife, um, how was the rest of your pregnancy and what did the care with her look like? Um, so home birth midwives in Ireland do all your um, typical hospital care at home. So everything except a scan. So you would typically work alongside your own GP for blood works if you need them. But all of the measurements, all of the um, 
you know, checks of sizes and all of those things happen in your home birth midwife. But I went to Canada for three months of my birth to live, to, of my pregnancy to live on an eco village. Um, so, and I came home then at like eight months pregnant. So I had a little bit of um, GP support in Canada just to do like the regular checks, like protein in the urine and those kind of things. Yeah, so she did everything. But because of the service being so restricted here, I had to travel two hours each way, so four hour round trip to have my home birth checkups and to also have my home birth. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. but no hospital visits apart from one scan. Yeah, yeah, great. And you've talked a little bit about kind of the emotional and psychological journey of your pregnancy and overcoming fear, but did you have any physical um, kind of health complaints come up at all during your pregnancy? No, I think everything that needed to be dealt with was dealt with at the emotional level. <laughs> so no, I had no, I had a very easy, beautiful pregnancy. I'd be quite small physically, like quite thin and quite, um, small stature and I had a very small baby and a very small bump and very physically active and yeah I had a very easy pregnancy mm. physically very very full-on emotionally yeah yeah and yeah living that distance away from where you were going to give birth did you choose to travel up there before you went into labor or, or did you travel um kind of once things got started so um again because of the home birth issues here I couldn't get a midwife in my locality and had to travel a four hour round trip to be within the legally allowed geographical region that a home birth midwife is allowed to serve. Um, and as you, as you remember from earlier in the story, my friend said I could borrow her house. Two weeks before I was supposed to give birth, she was no longer able to lend me the house. Oh no. Yeah, so then we had this uh, huge, literally, I call it my, I call it my no room at the inn drama, um, because we had nowhere to give birth within my Midworth ge geographical area, which means then we had to find somewhere. So I went on like short term rentals, holiday rentals, and eventually found this magical place. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is it. And it was called Fairy Fort Farm. And Fairy Forts are a really ancient Irish physical place, which is a circle of trees, uh, which is left on the land and has been there for many, many generations because we believe that fairy folk inhabit them and that they're magical places. So uh, I sent off my no room at the inn email to probably 15, 20 different places and this person came back with so much warmth and excitement and joy and said, I would be honored if you would give birth on the farm. It'll be the first baby born on this farm in a hundred years. And it's an absolute honor. So we're like, Oh my God, this is so great. So we got down to visit it in those two weeks before I gave, I was due to give birth. And then we thought, okay, we'll book for the whole month because I'm due in the middle of the month, but you never know, could come early, could come late. In Ireland, if you go 14 days beyond your due date, they, uh, ma they make you ineligible for a home birth. Um, and ineligible actually to even remain pregnant, like there are people who have been taken to court to <laughs> yes, have enforced inductions. 
we only got birth choice rights last year. So um, abortion rights just got granted in Ireland after a epic 35 year battle. Um, thanks to citizens and citizens assemblies that made, um, that helped the citizens to understand the implications of their medical and other choices around being pregnant. So eventually we got it a year ago, but it's still very problematic and inaccessible to many. Well, so, that, mm-hmm. that idea that it's, you know, illegal to stay pregnant beyond 14 days over your due date is so shocking yeah. to me. <laughs> like, I mean, just off the top of my head, I believe that um, in France, full term is actually 42 weeks, not 40 weeks anyway. Exactly. Um, so obviously, yeah. you know, there's a, a bit of a margin of normal there. And also, it's your body. Uh, yeah, I, that 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 blows me away that um, you cannot have choice over your own body. And that that's just one example of the extreme end of control over women's bodies and pregnant bodies here. So like the absolute normalization of induction, like, oh, when's your baby due? Oh, I'm going in to be induced on Friday. Mm. Like that is the absolute norm, the norm, the expectation that like, this is how babies come. Like that's what breaks my heart. Mm. We have a lot of that control and coercion in the hospital system here. And, well, I, I believe it's coercion when there's a really big power imbalance and then you're not being given all of the options. You're only being given some of the options. To me, you're being coerced to do something because you, you, you're you not told that it's a choice. Um, but ultimately, everybody still has a choice to say no and walk away here they can say no to anything, even if it's hospital policy or, you know, or if a doctor's saying it, you can still say no. So the idea Legally that... you can here too, but <laughs> there's a grey area, like, and a lot of grey area. Most people don't know that they can say no for, for a start. And then, you know, because of that lack of information around what's possible, then you get such extremes examples as, you know, people being taken to court and forced into inductions and cesareans over for like it doesn't happen often because of the outcry that results of it but that's the thinking that underlines that like mm. you're coming in for an induction and often much more so like the the implications of private care much higher um interventions mm. yeah same in paid maternity care here yeah so I found that I found the little cottage. It was a stable that was converted into an old Irish cottage. And we packed up our bags that morning and I was feeling super emotional and super mopey. And down in the car I was very quiet. And eventually Jordan, my lovely partner, realized he was like, What what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just stretching out, I'm just feeling some Brexton hicks. And I'd had a few Brexton hicks throughout maybe from six months on in the pregnancy there that practice contractions. Um, And I was like, oh, just getting some, probably the, you know, the seating position. And he started to kind of track me a bit more. And he's like, these are quite frequent, Catherine. I'm just like, yeah, and it's nothing, Jordan. I'm just, you know, trying to get comfortable. And we stopped for lunch and they were, my mom and my mom was dropping us down at that point. We didn't have a car. We just arrived back in Ireland. and she was dropping us down to the to the ferry ford farm so we stopped for lunch and i was walking in this town in the rain and they were like wow you look so miserable i'm just like i'm not sure i'm miserable but i just feel really mopey and emotional and they're like how's your contractions and i'm just like oh they're not contractions like they're just like really mild braxton hicks it's just 
the stress of the move and having to pack and everything. Um, and then we continued to drive on and he was like still measuring my contractions. And I was laughing at him because I was like, you know, you're being silly. Like it's just, it's just the stress of the move. And he was like, okay, well, they're three minutes apart. And I'm like, exactly. Stop being ridiculous. Like it's just, it's just stress. <laughs> and so we pulled down this little laneway into this magical fairy fort farm and a cockerel walks out into the center of the road and stops the car and then walks like ever so regally, like, you know, the leader of a brass band or something and turned its head right and left in this really beautiful, dramatic way. Uh, and walked down the center of this path right into the farm. And it was just such a moment of unexpected magic that it shifted things. And then we became excited about being here and we became excited about like the journey that we were now on. We were about to be left there in this beautiful isolated place for a month together and everything was gonna be different in a month's time. And it was just a really beautiful moment of feeling like we were being welcomed by this cockerel onto their farm. And we arrived and Michael, the lovely farm owner was uh, warm and they said, you know, I think Catherine needs a little bit of space. It's been a long journey and just get her inside and she wants some privacy. So he's like, everything's set up, the heater's on, everything's ready to go, just settle in and you know, I'll bring you around something later on. It wasn't my place. It felt like I was in someone else's space. All of our bags were packed. We had no, nothing ready. It, it just, it felt really unsafe all of a sudden. I felt a ton of doubt, like, what am I doing? Why am I having a home birth? How in God's name did I think I could do this? I definitely can't do this. Now we're in the middle of nowhere. This is ridiculous. What am I doing? Um, so huge waves of fear started to kind of roll in again. Jordan, my partner, is, is really awesome and super calm, like really, really zen. And he kind of talked me down again and was like, you know, just come into the bed, lie down. We'll put on the hypnobirth tracks, just get into the zone. And so I tried to do that. And then I got an urge to poo, really strong urge to poo. So I was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. I remember, I remember reading this, that you know, in very early labor, some people have this urge to poo and it like really helps to clean out their um, passageways and can make labor easier. That must be what this is, okay. So like really strong urge to poo. And like, I wasn't aware, but I was quite altered already at that stage. Like, you know, at that stage, I was already not really with it. So I was in the bathroom, Jordan came in and he was just like, Kat, are you pushing? And I'm just like, I am trying to poo. <laughs> and he said, you've got to be really careful. Like, don't be pushing now. And I'm like, what? I'm just trying to poo. Give me some privacy. This is ridiculous. Getting more and more anxious and annoyed. And he was just like, okay, you, you cannot be in here and you cannot be trying to poo. This is really dangerous. I'm like, oh God. So more fear then came in. And I was like, I need Helen. It's time. Call her. She said, even if I didn't need her properly, but like I was just freaking out, like she would, she would support me. She said that, okay, I really need her right now. So he got on the phone. I could hear him in my like hyper aware state, um, in a super calm state, like just, you know, I think she needs some support, you know, she's trying to poo and, um, it's not happening. I think she's stressed and we just arrived and it'd be great to have like someone here to welcome her. Yeah. Yeah. She's getting a few like really mild contractions. She said, she's like, okay, I'll be straight over. And as soon as I knew she was coming, I could surrender into 
safeness, I guess, you know, I, I, I then felt it's okay. I'm not on my own. It's okay. There's somebody coming who knows what the hell they're doing because I really don't like, this is a leap into trust in a part of myself that I've never experienced before. So when I knew she was on her way, she was about 20 minutes away. I was like, okay, okay, get the computer, get the hypnobirth on. And they did that went into bed, they darkened the room. And then I was okay. I was really calm when she arrived. She arrived just like a gentle breeze, like what's going on, Catherine? Like really warm and really trusting. And I was like, I'm afraid. I don't think I could do this. She's like, okay, what do you need? And I'm like, I'm, she said, what, what can I do? I said, I'm afraid that I'm in labor, but I'm afraid that you're going to tell me that it's like barely even labor and that, you know, it's already starting to feel intense. And I'm going to be even more afraid when you tell me that it's not really labor and I'm going to feel like I can't actually do this. And she said, okay, well, what would help? And I was like, I think I actually need an internal, like to tell me like how far along I am, if I am even anything, like maybe I'm just freaking out. Maybe this is nothing. And she's like, okay. And like never even felt the internal, like, was nothing, it was absolutely nothing. And she, I remember she looked at me and she said, Catherine, what's your best case scenario here? And I thought, God, that is such a jerky thing to say to somebody. Like, how could I possibly, what? My best case scenario, this is ridiculous. God, that's insensitive, Helen. And I was like, okay, best case scenario. Okay, best case scenario best case scenario, I'm like 10 centimeters and ready to push because that's what I feel like. And she said, Catherine, you're 10 centimeters and ready to push. I'm like, what? And she said, actually, you're already, he's already, the baby's already two centimeters out um, of the cervix. Like you, you, the baby's already two centimeters down the birth canal. I'm like, oh. And then my mom was still there and she was like, screaming, screaming. I knew you could do it. I'm like, I haven't done it. I haven't done this. It's just the early stages. And Helen was like, how did you do that? Like, this is amazing. Oh my God. You've just gone through like the first stage of labor. And I'm like, have I? What? Oh my God. Oh my God. And then it was just elation and more trust and validation. And it had just been so mild. It had just been so manageable totally manageable like intense at times but I could really see um you know the seesaw of fear and trust and fear and trust and like when I let it was similar to me actually I had also a fear of water and swimming that I um got through by learning to scuba dive um and I remember that same edge in in scuba diving of being like at that choice point of knowing that I'm touching the edge of fear. And this particular fear could kill me. I remember knowing that like so crystal clear that you know now I have a choice. I, I have the tools, I have the support and I have to manage that fear or it will take me somewhere I don't want it to take me. And I remember like really consciously navigating that fear and allowing myself to go into trust and allowing myself to rely on the hypnobirthing tools and Helen's wisdom and Jordan's body and the pressure that he was putting, especially on my pelvis was something that I really needed. I just needed heat. So like constantly changing hot water bottles on my pelvis and like really strong pressure points on the pelvis. 
Um, and that was really all I needed. And then just to be allowed to lie there. Like I, I did like, I'm really non-physical, like a really unphysical, unphysically active person. But like, I thought, okay, I better do stuff. So I you know, went and did um, uh, pregnancy Pilates. And of course I have like lo- no leg muscles. So I was like, how am I going to hold a squat for five hours? This is ridiculous. I can't do this. <laughs> and it was just so beautiful that my birth was mine. It was not like very physically active. I lay on the bed for the whole second stage of like the baby moving down. And I, I lay on the bed, like just in really deep conscious connection with every sensation that I was feeling like, I remember an older woman, a friend and mentor of mine telling me that she was imagining and whether it's true or not, she couldn't say, but she was imagining that she could feel the baby's nose pushing against the birth canal. And I remember connecting in with sensations like that, where Mm -hmm. I was allowing everything to slow down because I knew that was okay. Like I had enough knowledge now to know that's what birth can look like. You actually could be in a coma, right? Like that was so transformative like i said earlier like i could be in a coma now and my body will give birth there's nothing that i need to do except to really support it to happen by breathing staying calm asking for what i need and and letting it unfold and that's what happened and then we got to that last stage where the contractions had slowed down again and i asked what was going on she said you know maybe some fear um, and I was like, okay, yeah, there's definitely fear. And then Clary Sage left, let all the contractions flow again. And then we got to the very last stage. And again, you know, that hyper aware state, I saw a side eye between the midwives and knew instantly something's going on. And she said, okay, yeah. She goes, I think we probably should work a little harder now in the pushing to to get the baby out more quickly i'm like okay what's going on and they were like nothing but i think we're probably just taking more time than we need to take and there's probably a little bit of fear tied up in that for you but it's going to be okay we're going to work with you but we're going to actually need to do a little bit of pushing now and i remember feeling outraged because you know this was against all of my expectations like no coach pushing um birth just happens uh so there was about maybe three pushes at the end where they were like kind of yeah push now now push and I didn't know how to do that like push down push and I kept like blowing out through my mouth and my partner was like no you need to push down like it's now time for pressure I'm like okay so I did one at about like 50% effort you know and I, I then felt the sensation the ring of fire but again it was just from this place of like observation rather than like and it's like oh yeah that's the ring of fire wow yeah it's not really painful but yes it's really intense it's a really hot stretchy feeling that's what that is okay yeah I feel that now and then okay Castro we need, we're going to need two more pushes so and then I gave about a 70% push and then they were like okay we've crowned we've crowned hold it and I'm like okay nothing's happening nothing's happening they're like yeah that's fine baby's moving now just slow it all down again of course it was super intense with the ring of fire feeling and then my mother was in the other room and I had you know whatever capacity of awareness to shout her name because I knew this would be the last one 
And so she, I shouted, mom, come in. And she came running into the room. And then I had one last push and then the baby went whoosh, but didn't land on the bed. There was no baby there on the bed. So I'm like, what's going on here? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And I looked down and the baby was like wrapped in the cord and dangling <laughs> through the air. Yeah, like a trapeze. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, oh, 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 oh gosh, okay. <laughs> I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing here. And then of course the midwives were there and they had an oxygen pump and they gave him one pump, pump of oxygen because his breathing had not kicked in in those few moments and he had had the cord wrapped. And again, you know, to, to have known that that is a normal way that babies are born, like they're often born with the cord round, wrapped around their neck and it's not a problem because they're not breathing yet. And when they do take a breath, then you remove, like, you know, because there's so much fear around that. Mm. And it's often a story that's used to have justified what just happened to people in hospital who were giving birth. Oh, I had to because the cord was wrapped. So to me, again, it was like, yeah, the cord was wrapped quite seriously around his arm and shoulder and neck. And there was absolutely no problem. The baby was fine. Um, and the little shot of oxygen from that like pushy bulb oxygen thing was um, helpful and unnecessary and not fully necessary um, but also like no big drama you know they knew what they were mm-hmm. doing everything was predictable and, and progressing as they needed it to yeah. and, and so that was that yeah and I'd like to just say in this for anybody who's listening along that when the umbilical cord isn't cut yet, the baby's still actually receiving oxygen through the umbilical cord while the while there's still blood still pumping in there. So even though it can feel, you know, a little bit scary and, you know, if they're not breathing straight away, that you do have a bit of time and time for that to happen and that's really normal, yeah. Yeah, and they don't breathe straight, straight away, like not that split millisecond. And as you say, the blood is still going in, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, um, I'm imagining one of the midwives... Um, then passed him, uh, him, was it? Yes, it ended up being a boy. We didn't know until that moment, yes. Yeah, yeah, passed him up to you. How, how were you feeling in that moment when you got to hold him for the first time? So I didn't, and this is where there's a little bit of um, disappointment and sadness. So because of the breathing thing, and also for reasons that I'm not fully aware of, um, or I suppose I haven't fully accepted so, and I don't agree with. So in that moment then, because we were in such a dark room, they then took the baby out into the hallway just outside the door of the bedroom um, and did like a full assessment there, which was probably 30 seconds. But everybody rushed out of the room to go see the baby, like in an excited way and, and to check over it. I then wasn't informed what was going on. And I was like left lying on the bed feeling like, whoa, this is not what I wanted. This does not feel right. I feel, I feel abandoned, like as a person, but also I feel like this shouldn't have happened. Like they shouldn't have taken the baby away from me in the room. Um, and the cord was still attached. Was the cord still attached? Gosh, that's a blur right now. They wouldn't have cut the cord that quickly. It was a much ceremony, it was more ceremonial later. So I guess, so I think maybe the placenta had come straight out. Because mm. I remember like, I remember being told, oh, what now? 
and they were like, oh, the placenta. And I'm like, oh God, I've got to like give birth again. They were like, no, no, just, just kneel up on the bed uh, with a bowl between your legs. And I'm like, what? Not what I was expecting. <laughs> and I did that and the placenta came straight out, which again, I hear yeah. is, you know, not, not, doesn't happen for everyone, but is much more normal and much more common than the drama around placentas. Like it's typical in Ireland that you're injected I imagine with syntocin again to release the placenta like or like mm. really hard massage on the on the womb to push it out that seems to be normal in hospitals here as well yeah, standard in Australia as well standard mm. yeah totally not not totally unnecessary but highly unnecessary mm. so that piece I am not happy with like that didn't feel right or good to me um and I remember feeling like my needs as a human were not being met and my needs as like a new mother were not being met in that moment. Like, why am I not getting support? Why am I not getting checked? And why is the baby being removed? Which is what didn't feel good to me. Mm. So it was momentary. They brought the baby back and they put the baby down. beside. I think I felt like total overwhelm. And in my story, when I wrote it out, I, I remember saying, I wish that I had being one of those women again that I had read of because that story came up for me a lot during my pregnancy um gosh I should be excited about this gosh I should be okay with this this should be really wonderful and exciting and again the same feelings straight after labor of meeting the baby for the first time was just like oh I'm supposed to be like gushing now like this is supposed to be like my falling in love moment um and just not just not like being still in a place of survival for myself, like maintaining my own needs mode and not yet switched into, I also now have to just have, to me, it was just inaccessible to have just gone through all of that, which was much less traumatic than many people's and much less long than other people's labors. And then to have to like step into that mode for the first time ever, that seemed really inaccessible to me. I was like, wow, like I'm really just kind of spinning right now. This is huge. Um, so I remember looking, I remember saying that this was a really tiny baby and it was a really tiny baby. I didn't quite get just how small he was at the time um, comparatively. And I remember him being really uh, awake and aware and connected and making eye contact and then just being like wow this is like a whole new thing I have no idea what to do now and then being told that I should breastfeed and of course you know never having breastfed before <laughs> like it's also strange the things that they expect that you should be able to do and want to do like and just to me like it felt like a huge imposition like wow I have just gone through this huge thing and now I'm expected to do these other things I don't know how I can do that. But then, you know, the support from the midwives were there. They helped me with the latch. Again, I don't know how anyone does it without that communal care, especially when, you know, many of us didn't grow up seeing breastfeeding or certainly not seeing breastfeeding intimately and being taught that these are particular techniques. Um, so that was really, really helpful to have somebody there to, you know, help me with the latch and the technique and everything. Mm, yeah. And um, oh, just briefly out of interest, I know we're like going way over time, but I'm very curious to know um, 
and maybe you haven't discussed it with her, but um, yeah, whether you've talked to your mother at all about what the experience was like for her of being present for that birth. Yeah, it was beautiful. So, and on top of that, um, so my mother in particular would have an awful lot of trust of me, like even through my teenage years when she probably shouldn't have trusted me as much as she did. Just a whole lot of like, I know that you've got this. So when everyone else was like, you can't let her have a home birth. That's really dangerous. That's completely irresponsible. What is she thinking? You know, that's what hospitals are for. Do not let your daughter have a home birth. It's completely inappropriate. She would always say, it is the right choice for her. Like she could not do a hospital birth. This is the right choice for her. And then because Jordan was still in Canada while I was in my early stages of pregnancy after I came back from going to Australia to lock down my life, um, mom came to the hypnobirth birth course with me and was for the first time exposed to physiological birth thinking, having had the experiences that she had where she was like really badly damaged by birth physically and the emotional terror of being completely unaware of where the baby was even going to come from. So to have this totally transformative information 45, 50 years after having had that first experience was totally emotional for her and really healing, like to know that had she had that information, had women of her generation had that information, had that support, that birth doesn't have to look like that. It doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be terrorizing and we don't have to accept it as being terrorizing. That was so beautiful to her. So that helped her to trust the birth process even more. And then to be there for the labor, having, you know, she'd be very religious. So she was in the other room praying, 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 lighting candles and, you know, sending all of her um, support to us through her prayers to then be there for the birth and to have seen that it worked how I hoped it would and to have this beautiful baby and her connection with him now having been at that labor and that birth is, is really beautiful and special. Mm. One of my favorite parts about home birth is the way that just the capacity that it has to heal that trauma that's handed down through the maternal line and how, yeah, one woman who, who chooses to yeah take that power back and do something different can change that for all of the women that are going to come in that line and especially when when older older women like mothers and grandmothers can be part of the birth process that is something really special and healing I think yeah really unexpectedly healing it's beautiful would you like to share a little bit about what that kind of adjustment to parenting was like I'm sure we could have a whole nother podcast episode about postpartum but um yeah kind of from that point of meeting a son and not having that kind of instant, um, you know, overwhelming sensation of, of love and maternal instinct. Mm. Um, yeah. Kind of how your adjustment into, into early parenting was like. My adjustment. So because we were, because I ended up being in labor on the first day of our month rental of the little cottage, we then had like 30 days, just the two of us in this like really isolated spot, but with all of this home birth support. So in Ireland, you get a 10 day support package for, from your midwife to come around and help you to know all the things that you don't know about how to use 
in our case, cloth nappies and how to use um, breastfeeding and, you know, how to burp and all of those things that, you know, obviously now five, five years in are ridiculously normal. But at that time was just like, I don't know how to pick up this child. I don't know how to feed. I don't know how this position is. Everything feels like way too big for his mouth. It just was massive. Um, so I'd say the adjustment was, was slow. It's, I still feel like I'm in early parenthood. Like I still feel like I'm adjusting. I still feel like I'm not the most natural mother. Um, for me again, how I've accessed my wisdom and my capacity and skill is through theory, which is how I tend to access things that don't feel all that easy to me. And so, yeah, moving away from um, that birth, how, how were you feeling about the possibility of another birth? Had you considered, um, yeah, the possibility of a second or how did that conception happen? No, no, the conception happened in the same way as the first. So <laughs> nature and our relationship connection took over. Um, and a year and a half after the first, I found myself pregnant with the second. So there's two years and two months between them. Um, my partner was much more easygoing with the idea of a second. He was like, ha ha ha, in for a penny, in for a pound, you know, what's the difference between one and two? And so that helped, but I actually do think there's a huge difference between one and two. Um, and I think parenting has taught me an awful lot about myself, even after, you know, what I thought was an awful lot of personal work, things that I just had managed to avoid about like me and my tendencies and, like now I see myself as like sensory avoidant. I didn't know that I was sensory avoidant because I didn't have to be in such intense sensory experiences. I could have just walked away before, mm. you know, but now I'm like, oh my God, I am so sensory avoiding. This is too much for me. So two, the, the parenting of two has been a huge shift and I find it really, really hard. I'm often overwhelmed by the noise or the, the multiple requests at once. I find that really hard. So I do think there's a huge difference between one and two, especially for people like me who, um, yeah, I just don't flow with it in the way that I would, that I see other, other women, especially other mothers doing it. I, I still, like my mother always says, you know, yeah, it hasn't come naturally to you, Catherine. And it hasn't, like it's been, it's been a, a, a logical learning journey of trying to, better my skills and capacity and cope you know I don't live in the village that I imagined that we would all have when this happened right like we are mostly an isolated family trying to get by I have a really strong drive for my work in the world I find that to be in conflict with what's expected of me and the kind of parenting that I know is helpful for um, healthy children and adults so to me it's like I find it really, really challenging to do it all to the level and the standard that I put on myself because of what I know about attachment and development. So I find it really tricky. So pregnancy with number two came along. Um, uh, I contacted Helen again, asked her if she'd be my midwife. She said yes as a favor because she had already gone to, she had left the home birth um, full-time work because it just wasn't supportive of her so as it happened 
so pregnancy again less emotional than the first because i just didn't have the time and space to engage with my own emotional experiences um i had nausea for the first time in pregnancy so more of the kind of typical challenges of pregnancy that i'd heard of not really bad but like enough to be like oh yeah i can see how this would be awful and then because I had a quote unquote low birth weight of my first baby, the, um, and because you have to get a sign off for a home birth from your, from a hospital obstetrician who you just go and see and say, I'm pregnant and I want a home birth. And they're like, okay, you know, fine or not fine. Um, so immediately if you are 40 or over, you are no longer eligible for a home birth in Ireland. Um, if you've had like a cesarean, you're no longer eligible for a home birth from the government in Ireland, you could pay for one, um, but you're not eligible to have one, which again shows that there's absolutely no evidence as to there being a higher increase of anything after a cesarean. Um, so I went to the obstetrician to get what I thought was a routine home birth sign off. And she was like, just nailing me, like looking through all my charts, and clearly trying to find something. And then delighted that you found that I had a low birth weight baby. And I was just like, you know, okay, he was a low birth weight compared to a lot of um, babies born in this country. Like if you look at my stature and if you look at my partner's stature, and if you also look at babies born in other countries where they have like a simpler diet, which is what we had on the eco village, this is actually a much more typical birth weight. And there was no problems and everything was fine. And she was like, okay, we'll keep an eye on it and we'll measure, but you know, I'm not willing to sign off yet. And then they took me in for a scan and she said that there was, um, what was the word that they used? But some, some, I'm blanking on the word, you can edit this out, but like a challenge with the Doppler, like it wasn't reading, you know, the Doppler reading is like the sound waves. Yeah, right. Like an irregular, irregularity or? Slight irregularity in, um, the Doppler reading, which is my memory, is to do with the blood in the cord. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. And so they made a huge thing out of this and said, um, this is reading irregular. We want you to go straight over to the hospital. Uh, I think I was, God, I was not far along. 30 weeks, something like that. We want you to go straight to the hospital right now. You're going to be getting an injection of steroids and um you're going to be on bed rest and be watched for the weekend i'm like what is going on so i was devastated totally upset rang helen the midwife which you know again most women don't have access to that information when that kind of information is given to them they're like oh my god okay whatever's best for baby and of course i was thinking okay if this is a genuine issue of course i will comply rang helen told her the information told her the facts and she was like like they know that the Doppler reading is notoriously hard to get a solid reading on as an indicator on it on its own. It's just not. So you need to ask for further evidence to show that there's a potential problem here. You don't have to accept the steroid in, in, injection. The steroid injection is there in case your baby is born early so that their lungs can breathe oxygen. There's no indicator unless they can show you other evidence as to this baby being at risk of being born prematurely. Okay. So in, I went to the second hospital and just, you know, had the warrior armor on at that stage. I was like, you know, I'm not consenting to this. This is notoriously told them everything that she had said, but not said it was from her. 
um, show me some other evidence, blah, blah, blah. So they then called in the big guns. So they called in another nurse who was more senior. And then they called in the obstetrician to try to pressurize me to accept the injection and to accept that there's no way they would give me a sign off for the home birth because of these things. I was continuously asking for more evidence to showcase that there was a problem and was not willing to accept what they were offering. And I was just absolutely outraged and left the hospital that day. And I said, okay, so here's my rights. I know. And again, you know, uh, most people are not given that power and that support to know what their rights are. But I was like, okay, I know that my rights are to receive a second opinion. And she was like, well, may I suggest that you don't get this second opinion from this hospital? I was like, wow, sure. Okay. So I then had to drive five hours to a hospital in the very far south of Ireland, five hours each way to get a obstetrician who was known to be like not against home births. So evidence-based rather than fear-based. So down I went, he saw me, um, it took like weeks to get the appointment. He saw me, um, did all the tests as did the sonographer. And they were just like, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this baby. There is nothing wrong with your pregnancy. A hundred percent. Here's your sign off. I'm like, Oh my God. So got signed off, went back home. And then again, because I had gone into labor two and a half weeks early for the last baby, um, th no, three weeks early for the last baby. I had then booked, we had to rent a house again. Down we go again. Uh, I had booked it from two and a half weeks before my due date. And then the night before we were supposed to go, Jordan and I ended up having sex. I went in to sleep in the spare room at around four o'clock because I couldn't quite settle. And I was like, I am cramping. Damn it, I'm totally cramping. This is really uncomfortable. And by 7 a.m., they hadn't stopped and they were still kind of escalating. I was like kicking myself. And I waited till seven as the latest I could. And I texted Helen. I was just like, Helen, you know, um, what would you say if I said that I was having like, you know, um, contractions for the last like three or four hours? And she was just like, oh God, okay. And I was like, we're supposed to be leaving. Um, no, that was Wednesday. We were supposed to be in the, in the rental on Saturday, three days from then. And I was, I was like, you know, what would you say? And she was like, well, by law, I'd be required to say, um, that I'm not allowed to come to you because you're two hours outside of my geographical zone rather than the hour and a half that's allowed. I'm like, wow, okay. So she goes, like, I'd lose my license if I was to come to you. And if you are in labor, I'm required to let you know that you know you should go to hospital for that labor um, and that I'm not allowed to come to you. I'm like, okay, okay, thank you for that. And, you know, you know anything like off the record that you want to say and she's just like well you know I would remind you Catherine that you've had perfectly easy perfectly um pain-free and uh issue-free first pregnancy and labor and that you know how to birth I'd remind you of that I'm like okay okay and she said yeah and you know I'm here on the other end of the phone so let me know just so happened that my niece was in, was visiting and she had had my adult niece she had had her home birth uh, a year earlier and so she knew about labor she was in her late 20s 
and I asked her to come up and, you know, do the kind of prep work for the space and support from the sides. And she did that gladly. My mom took then two-year-old older child and I just lay in the bed and convinced myself that I wasn't in labor. So I did that for the next quite a few hours. Um, let me think that was so 4 a.m. Baby was born at one. So seven, eight hour of denial. No, probably six hours of denial of being just like, nah, it's definitely Rex and Hicks. It's definitely Rex and Hicks. And just, you know, trying to, she was like, when I got off the phone with my midwife, she said, look, I'll give you a piece of advice. She goes, if it is labor, you can't stop it. If it's not, it will stop. So she goes, either way, get into bed, get your hypnobirth on, have something lovely. She goes, piece of chocolate, a small little um, cognac, brandy, calm yourself down. It's really early morning, chill out. I'm like, okay, so I did that and listened to hypnobirth in the bed. And then started to accept that definitely things were escalating, you know, probably around lunchtime. Jordan was with me the whole time. My niece was in and out um, bringing water, hot water bottles again. He was supporting me with back pressure. And <laughs> eventually my niece comes into the room and she was just like, Catherine, um, I think you're definitely in labor. And I'm like, really, really? Yeah, I think you're in labor. And actually, I think you've just gone into stage two because all of your sounds have just changed. So I've set up the space in your bedroom and the pool is in there. There's candles lit. It's all dark and cozy. We're going to help you move in there now. There's like a plastic sheet over the bed. It's all good. I'm like, oh, I don't want to move. She's like, it's fine. It's going to be fine. So they linked me over both arm, brought me into, into the other room. Oh yeah, I had said to Jordan, you know, if I am, if I am in labor, listen to me, listen to me. If I am in labor, this is what I want you to do. Under no circumstances are you to call for the hospital unless I tell you that there is a need to call for the hospital and I will know if there's a need to call for the hospital. I'm not taking any risks. I feel like I will really know about whether we need support. Helen midwife couldn't come. So I had two choices. I labor alone or I go to hospital. And there was absolutely no way I was going to choose hospital because I felt like I could do this. So by that stage, I was in second, la second stage labor. I said, here's the plan. I feel like I know how to give birth and I feel like I know if there's anything wrong. If I tell you there's something wrong, I want you to call an ambulance. Either way, when the baby's head is crowning, I want you to call an ambulance. Because if there's something wrong when the baby comes out, I don't know what to do. So when the baby's crowning, call an ambulance regardless. Okay, is that agreed? Yes, all agreed. Went into the other room, um, second stage of labor, uh, polar bear position again, so knees up on the back of the knee and my arms up on the back of the bed as I gave birth last time. Um, intense, like rushes of contractions, but again, like fine, manageable, not intense, just like not, not painful, just intense sensations and feelings. And then I started to feel the ring of fire and the push. And then I started to feel like, oh God, last time this didn't go that well. This is where I was requested to do like a little bit of, you know, forced pushing last time with my first. 
And then he needed oxygen. Oh my God. So then the fear started to come in again and I didn't know what to do. And I knew I needed support. And at that point I was like, call Helen. So we got Helen, the midwife on speakerphone. Tell me what you're experiencing. This is what I'm experiencing. She's like, okay, that's the baby's head bearing down and you're pushing to try to get it out because you're starting to panic. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what's starting to happen. And I was like, I think I'm tearing. I'm starting to tear. And she's like, okay, you're just going to take a breath and pull the baby back in. I'm like, what? She's like, just pull it back in. Slow everything down and pull the baby back in. Stop pushing, pushing on the head. Let it all slow down. I'm like, oh God, okay, yeah, I forgot. I forgot you could do that. She's like, so take it really slow. So now it's just about nudging, nudging, nudging. You're letting yourself stretch and you're letting the baby nudge down. Then it's gonna take its really slow turn where it feels like everything has gone still. That's gonna happen soon. Talk me through everything in a way that I could connect with and understand with like crystal clarity. Um, the tear that I was starting to feel happen completely stopped and I, I was like oh my god like yeah it must be horrific absolutely horrific to be injured in that way and to not have somebody who, instead of who's pushing you to get it out faster and push harder who's actually saying trust your body your body knows how to do this but let it do its thing like don't be in such panic mode that you're trying to push it out beyond its capacity to respond so um, a few more gentle nudges and pushes and then I get the big announcement that they can see the head and that it's black, it's got really thick black hair. I'm like, oh my God. And then my overly dramatic niece gasped and she's like, oh, it's just popped. I'm like, what? <laughs> and she's like, oh, oh, it's okay. It wasn't the head. <laughs> so the head had come out in the sack and as it was coming out then, while the head was out, the sack burst from around the head, but she could see the face and head then inside the sack and the sack burst. And she took this really full on photo, fair play to her, of that moment. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so that was unexpected. <laughs> so everything then slowed down again and everyone was super happy. The baby was coming. I was able to do it. There was no medical help and support there, but we had managed. Um, and at that point, it felt like we were almost done because the head was out, but everything had slowed down and the body was still inside. And that was, I think, a special moment that I hadn't had in the first one because it felt like it was intense and a little bit um, of a mini emergency in the first one. Like there was that tension there. And this time it was like, oh my God, oh my God, we're doing it. And she said, and they're breathing. Like I can see the bubbles under their nose yay okay great I'm like okay call the ambulance so Jordan went out to the room called the ambulance said you know we need somebody here to assess and I was just like I also want them to be super clear that I am I'm not leaving with them like I'm not going into hospital and they were like okay so they arrived 10 minutes later babe was already in arms and feeding was already happening they had no idea what to do they were totally mesmerized they like asked what they should do were really respectful and non panicky um were of course wanting to cut the cord and tie the cord and of course we knew enough to tell them no there was no need to and um that was it and that was fine so i think i feel torn about my second birth because 
the pushback that I got socially around my first birth was mitigated by the fact that I had medical professionals there who would know what to do. And I haven't, it's four years almost exactly since my second birth. I haven't written the story and I haven't really told it publicly because like part of me wants that story to be my empowered free birth story, like that I get to claim and I get to have chosen that. But the other part of me knows that it wasn't actually a choice. Like I didn't want to give birth alone. Like I was afraid and I was again managing my fear without the support of a professional that I wanted to be there. Like stupid, meaningless geographical laws prevented her from being there. And that was, and she feels guilty. Like she's like, I should have quit over that. I should have, you know, just come to you. And she couldn't, like that was her livelihood. And she was already back in the hospital system at that stage. So I feel torn because I know that even more pushback is likely to come onto me for choosing to give birth in that way without having medical support there because something could have gone wrong. Like, I do feel like I was lucky. I was also really informed and experienced and had good support there and had access to good support. However, if something had happened, we wouldn't have had the support that I had a right to and that I needed and wanted. So I feel a bit torn. It's like, it was a beautiful experience, but like the social pressures that led to that meant it wasn't fully my choice. And I wish it had been fully my choice. Like if I was to go for a third or if I was to support, to support somebody else to go through labor, I think it's really important to know that we can have those experiences and we shouldn't have to. We should, we should have the choice to choose with true consent what our labor and birth experiences are like. And that only comes from learning and understanding, but also hearing other people's experiences of what is possible because the dominant story is one of such terror and pain and just managing that pain. Whereas the reality can be, you know, a rite of passage and something that actually reminds us that our bodies are wise and that our mental capacity to learn what's actually going on can be empowering and we you know each individual's experience for what their birth was and how they navigated it to me is the birthright of human society and i think the the removal of that birthright of empowering birth is has such painful ripples throughout society such painful ripples everything from you know low birth breastfeeding rates from to, to like you know for me reading that 75 percent of your lifetime of health comes from how you're born and what you're fed wow right like of course not everybody has that choice but much more of us would make that choice if we had all of the information and the support to actually do it mm. um, as well as you know the situation and, and i don't know if this is is for a camera but just would love to hear your wisdom because what i feel constantly upset and frustrated by is that i know that this wisdom and experience is accessible to other pregnant people but there's this really weird dynamic between 
women who have had empowering birth experiences and those that haven't. And I don't personally, I haven't done well in navigating that. And I find that when I give this information out there, it's received with um, mistrust or with the assumption that there's judgment for other experiences in birth or, um, or something. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to support women to really know that there are other potentials for birth. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that as well um, really often and have had to at times hold back a lot when I'm with pregnant friends who are, who are going heading into their first birth and go, okay, well, I have to let it be your experience and, and for you to, you know, I can, I can share my thought processes and, and, and what I did and touch on how I feel about the choices that you're making, but ultimately that's up for you, up to you and, and yeah, really conscious of navigating that. But for me, just listening to you, and I think you, you actually summed up all of this really beautifully, but with this dominant kind of culture of basically making you fit, making something that's so diverse fit into such a small box for it to be acceptable. And basically that box is a managed birth in hospital. That then in your situation with your free birth, I was thinking about this where you know, all your options got taken away from you and you take back your autonomy and make a decision that fits outside of that and then you get blamed and judged for it or you're afraid to tell people about the story because um, it'll be your fault for the choice. But it's not, it's not the fault of all the systems that excluded you and pushed you to a point where you had to make a decision which maybe you weren't even 100% comfortable with. Yeah, and so often I've, like I thought about, because I live in a tiny little village and like definitely he would have been the first baby born in that village, even in that townland, because we don't have a hospital. In 60, 70, 80 years, maybe, you know, so it would have been a beautiful announcement for the village. But I knew it wasn't worth the reaction that I would get unless I presented it as a oopsie. Mm. Guess what happened? Well, I just happened to be at home, which is what I told a lot of people. I was just like, yeah, I came early. Yeah, I came early at home. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry that was that was your experience and continues to be. That's really sad and probably, you know, in contrast to what I, what I imagine was a really empowering experience at the end of the day. Yeah, it was really empowering. It was a beautiful it was a beautiful birth, a beautiful experience and despite having to navigate almost like the fear of being caught. And I've heard the same thing I have a friend who had um, like an orgasmic birth and the same thing like when she talks about her experiences with that the pushback and the shaming and the disbelief and the like how dare you lie about something that we all know is utterly traumatic how dare you because now I feel like I've failed in the medicalized birth that I had and it's like I don't know how we get past that no, and that's like a yeah. that's like a double whammy with sh shame of childbirth and shame of pleasure as well, <laughs> all combined into into one act that shouldn't be spoken of. Yeah, it's a long way to go, but it's shifting fast. Thank you for your work and sharing stories. Mm, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It was such a pleasure to hear.
<laughs> Thank you for staying up late. No, that's all right. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode with Catherine. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support me by leaving a star rating or review on the podcast app you're listening on, or consider signing up as a Patreon supporter. You can find out more info about the Keep Birth Wild podcast and how you can support me to keep the show going on the website www.keepbirthwild.com.au. And I look forward to bringing you another episode next week.